Now that you're at your seats and sitting down, would you stand for the reading of scriptures? It's not, we do this every week. I don't know why y'all are surprised. <laughs> All right, so we, uh, at River and Way, we like to stand for the reading of scripture just to recognize the authority of God's word. Uh, God's revealed scriptures to us, God's revealed word to us. And so we stand just as like reverently honoring God and the scriptures. And then this is a bit of a long text. So you're going to be standing for a little while, get comfortable. And then at the, at the end of the reading of the scripture, I will say, this is the word of the Lord and the appropriate congregational response is, thanks be to God. Well done. Well done. So today's reading is from Luke 15. Verse 11 through 32. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, said the father, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You may be seated. And if you would, um, just join me as I pray. Would you even just like find yourself giving your attention or as much as you can to God this morning? 
even just like sit in this like state of silence for five or ten seconds as you find your presence before a holy, righteous, good God this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are, like what this reveals to be true about you. We thank you that um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, like you indwell us, your church, your body, for the work of the kingdom here in the city of Bakersfield. And that's not just like a river and way thing, that is a all over the city thing. And so Jesus, just as we come to you, we pray that we would like encounter you again. So often we move through our days and our weeks that are like full and busy. And in this moment, I just pray that like as we come to the scriptures, we would encounter the power and the presence of a living God again. We ask like in boldness even that like you would do in this place what only you could do. That God, you would do things that we could never do. That you would speak to hearts and you would draw people to yourself through the power of this story that Jesus tells. We love you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been going through like the parables for a little while and the, the, the series we've entitled is called Imagine the Kingdom because parables are like a fictitious story that Jesus is telling to help us understand or access the kingdom of God help us understand or access the kingdom of God. When I taught the introduction about this series, I said the like parables are a bit like the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. It's the way we get to understand and see a little bit different, a different world. So parables are a bit like that. Jesus is sharing parables so we can understand a little bit more about the kingdom of God. There are a few texts in the entire Bible that can generally be recounted or told by the general public, even people who don't follow Jesus. And of those texts that can be retold from the Bible, I'm convinced two of the top five at least are parables. One being the Good Samaritan, which we looked at a few weeks ago, and then the other being today's text, the parable of the prodigal son. And much like the Good Samaritan, most people who know something of this story do not necessarily know the details or that it's a parable at all. Whether raised in the church or not, the term prodigal has meaning to you. It has like some sort of understanding. It's one example of many, in my opinion, about how Judeo-Christian values and Christian story has contributed to the shaping of Western civilization. But what I find most interesting about the way the term prodigal is used or shapes our understanding is that the word prodigal never occurs in this story. Depending on your Bible translation, the header over Luke 15, 11 through 32 says, the parable of the prodigal son, if you have an like, English standard version, an ESV, or the, the parable of the lost son, if you have an NIV or an NKJV. If you don't know what those letters mean, do not feel bad <laughs> whatsoever. Super Christianese Bible talk, it's weird. Or the prodigal son, if you have an NASB. Last one, sorry for, for the mention. But just for note, real quick, those headers... Those headers are not in the original text. The church uses these not as inspired meaning, but as ways to like 
break up the story so we can understand what it's talking about. So those headers are not inspired. They're not the word of God. They're just intended to help us navigate the Bible as a whole. Just like chapters and verses don't, don't exist in the original text. It's just like a helpful guide of how to sort through what we're getting after. But this lesson I bring up, this notation about headings in the scriptures, um, I, I mention it because I think this parable, if you look at it alone, I don't think those titles like aptly name it well. I understand why some people name it the lost son more than any other because it's, it's meant to be read with the two parables above it in Luke 15. And those two parables are the lost sheep in the lost coin, so the lost son goes really well with Jesus's like oral presentation. Both those previous stories are about having possession of something, a sheep or a coin, and losing that thing and then forsaking all other things to go and find that lost thing. And so if read and, and named in triad, like the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, that totally makes sense. But the way this gets skewed or understood as just like the prodigal story, I don't think is helpful in what the text is really getting after. I think Jesus, with these stories, um, is not mainly concerned about the prodigal son. And I think he's speaking to an audience that he's like trying to get to understand something different altogether. But to really understand and to wade into that, we actually don't need to start in Luke 11, 15, 11. We need to start in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. It should be on the screen. Jesus is on the scene, and this is what's going on. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This verse is really important. These verses, I should say, are really important to our understanding of what Jesus up to, is up to in his storytelling. We see that his intentional stories are like baked into having to do with and speaking to the context of the situation. The tax collectors and sinners are coming near to Jesus to listen to his teaching. And it's really hard for us to understand what this means. Because when I think tax collector, I think like, the IRS, or if I'm even more honest than that, I think about the CPA I hire to work with the IRS, so I don't have to work with the IRS. Shout out to Jacob, by the way. Um, but, when, but when Jesus says the tax collectors and sinners, we need to think of what that would be perceived as in that cultural time as like society's worst people. These are the down and out, the traitor and the thief. These are not people of like good social standing. These are the people who not only like hang out in the red light district, they hang out in the red light district after hours. And when everyone leaves, they stay. Not like they're going to do ministry in the red light district. Not that at all. These people like run the red light district and work in the red light district. These are those kinds of people. And the religious folk are not okay that these people are hanging around and coming to Jesus. There's a show called The Chosen. Show of hands, how many of you have seen some episode of The Chosen? Okay, I'm not generally a fan of Christian media whatsoever. Um, the Chosen is like the one exception. It's winning me a little bit. And the reason is because I, I think they do a really good job portraying these characters that help me understand 
Help me understand what they're going through, what they're experiencing. I love the way the chosen portrays the Pharisees, in particular Nicodemus, as like this struggle with Jesus, but also this like deep curiosity about Jesus. Like, could this really be the Messiah? Because the Pharisees, they recognize that Jesus speaks with authority and power, that he is Jewish and he's leading people and he's making proclamations about the kingdom of God, but they cannot seem to understand why Jesus is drawn himself to those who are openly in disobedience to God. And he's drawn to people who are not people of importance or influence in culture. You see, as long as the Pharisees see tax collectors and sinners coming, they cannot believe that God is even really at work amongst these people because surely these are not the people God is after. It is disorienting for the Pharisees that Jesus does not go to the religious or those with power, but Jesus goes to those currently far from God and those who are powerless. Because Jesus is leading an upside-down sort of kingdom, to be sure, and that is the context of these parables. We have to understand a bit about that in order to access these parables appropriately. Jesus is explaining the nature of the king and his kingdom through this story. And so in Luke 15, Jesus has already described the shepherd who goes looking for the sheep, and, he's, and, and, and the, the shepherd goes out and looks for the sheep and finds the sheep and brings the sheep home and then throws a party to celebrate that the one lost sheep has been found. This is where we get the phrase like, leave the 99 also in this text. And Jesus says in Luke 15, verse 7, about this picture, about the rejoicing of the found sheep, that, verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. And then in the next parable, he goes down, and it's talking about the woman who loses one of her 10 coins. She's lost 10% of her money, and she cleans the whole house until she finds it. And instead of being embarrassed about losing the money, she calls her friends to tell them that she lost the money, and then she found the money, and so they should all come over for a party. And then Jesus wraps that story with this line in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we come to verse 11. Jesus continued after these two stories and says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So really quickly and really clearly in the very introduction, Jesus frames this story to be about a man and his two sons. And the younger son comes to his father, whom we know really nothing else about, and says, will you give me my share of the estate? And the father does it. He divides his property between his sons and gives the younger son his portion. In my opinion, if I were making up a story, this is a bit aggressive. Like Jesus takes like a, a one line to like get to some depth of what's going on in the story, but I think it's important that we don't move too quickly past what's happening here. There are some important things culturally in these two lines that we have a tendency to overlook because we don't have much of a grasp on ancient Near East culture. But the request of the youngest son can ultimately be taken one of two ways. The first is a bit softer, 
It's that the younger son saw that the small family farm was not going to be able to be sufficient for him and his brother. So he wanted to cash in on dad's value now so he could go out and see what he could do on his own. Maybe start a farm of his own. I don't know. And that sounds palatable, at least to us in the modern West. But most scholars do not think that's what's going on here. More scholars would believe the request is something, the request of the younger son for, for the inheritance while dad is still alive is something more akin, more like a son's request that he could have what is rightfully his as if his father was already dead. That the youngest son is closer to saying, when it comes to my own life, dad, it would be better if you weren't here. And to a Jewish listener, this is like incredibly disrupting to the story, and it's an incredible opening to the story. It would be like if I came over to your house and was like, let me tell you a story. One of my sons asked me to die. Do you want to hear the rest of the story? Like, it's, it's like that. Like, it's, like, this is alarming to what's going on. And hopefully you'd instantaneously be hooked. And if you're like, no, I don't care, I'd be more concerned about you. But that's fine. And the father's response as we read it, as something along the lines of like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give it to you. Like almost like it's not a problem. And there's actually some like historical reference for this sort of ask. But what we're supposed to see really quickly is that the youngest son is like re- rebellious or prideful. And he, he believes that his life would be better if he could just have dad's money and no longer have dad. He wanted the father's money, but he did not want the father. And the story continues in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods, or the food that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I want you to pause for just a moment and think about all the squandering that's happened in this short amount of time. An entire, like half of an entire inheritance. Half of dad's estate he has, and he heads off to another land and loses all of the money living wildly. I'm going to allow your imagination to fill in the blanks with whatever you want to believe living wildly means. And then if you know anything about Jewish culture and unclean animals, the low point in this story is not the living wildly. It's that he's been hired to care for, for pigs, which is like very unclean. Jewish people would never dream of touching or working with pigs. And not only care for pigs, but then he longs to be filled, like his belly to be full, like the pig's belly is with the pig food. So you see this like downward trajectory to this like bottom moment where he doesn't have enough to feed himself and longs to be like the pigs. So he goes from dad's house of wealth to wealthy inheritance, to blown inheritance on wild living, to spending every last penny, to hiring himself out for work sent to the fields to care for unclean animals, wishing he had food like the pigs do so his belly could be full. In a brief story so far from Jesus, this is quite the drastic turn of events. This is the lowest of the low, and it's deeply purposeful. 
It's deeply purposeful for Jesus' story. In a Bible teacher move, I'm going to steal from Brandon, I'm going to show you a picture of artwork on the screen. This is a Rembrandt painting. Is the screen? Yeah, there it is. This is a Rembrandt painting, and it is titled Prodigal Son in the Brothel. Prodigal Son in the Brothel. And here is what I love about this picture. This picture is meant to encapsulate the story, this downward fall and downward spiral of the younger son. But when you look at the picture, you don't necessarily see that because Rembrandt is showing what would be perceived as like an enjoyable moment at this point in the story. But when we see this picture, we're supposed to understand how the story ends. But what I love most about this Rembrandt painting is that like the character that is the prodigal son is Rembrandt himself. So he paints himself as the prodigal in this story. That in the reading and the knowing of the story, Rembrandt paints himself as the prodigal, and I think he's on to something here. You see, Jesus is painting a word picture here in this story, and to his audience, some of them think tax collectors and sinners. Some of them find themselves in this character of the parable or the story. That is one of the things that Jesus does so beautifully in this parable. He invites you to consider yourself as each character. Because we all can think back on our own personal lowest of the low moments in life, our rock bottom, our spiritually dark hour, our wandering from faithfulness to God. Like Rembrandt, we too can see ourselves in this character of the prodigal. But of course, the story doesn't end here. The son comes to his senses and decides that his father's servants are cared for much better than he can care for himself and decides to set out for his father's house with a like planned speech of declaring that he's sinned against heaven and against you, father, would you make me like one of your servants? I'm no longer worthy to be a son. And he heads back to his father. Join me in verse 20, Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Jesus here completely surprises his listeners. This should shock you and me in the same sort of way. Imagine if that was your life just for a second. A child takes your inheritance, may wish death upon you, leaves all of the family responsibilities, abandons the farm, flees, and squanders everything. And then you see them coming back on the road. And what's interesting is the way Jesus tells this story is Jesus notates specifically that like, the father sees him when he was a long way off. And this is important because this means that there is intentionality on the father's behalf. That like the father is looking for the son to come down the road one day. It's one of the interesting contrasts between the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. In those parables, the person who owns the sheep or the person who owns the coin goes and looks for the coin or the sheep. And if you're hearing these three together, when you get to this point in the story, you would expect the father goes out to find the lost son, but that is not the story Jesus gives us. Jesus tells that like the father is home looking out, hoping with hope that the son would come back. 
But Jesus does include that line. The father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. In that Greek, in the Greek, the word filled means filled. It's, it's this really fancy term. Like this man is overcome with compassion for him, for his lost son. And so he takes off and runs to his son. Something that an elderly Jewish man would never consider doing, but he throws social expectation aside because his lost son has come home. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. He is overwhelmed with joy and delight that his son has returned. The son launches into his prepared speech and the father interrupts the son and yells to his service, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And the father spares no expense to celebrate the return of his son. And notice just for a second, there's not even a clear like repentance or line of remorse from the son. The father doesn't even like leave time for that. He's so overwhelmed and overcome with joy that his, his child has returned home. And, and if we're honest, just for a second, like this should actually disrupt a little bit of everyone's theological category for repentance. Like, like there's no line that is uttered that should make the father feel good about an outpouring of lavish love. But what we see that Jesus is after in describing the story this way is he's not after explaining repentance and the process of salvation. Jesus is revealing the heart of God for his people. There's a lot of debate about who exactly all the characters are in this story, who they represent. Is the elder son represent the Jewish people and the younger son the Gentile people? Or is it the righteous and the unrighteous? Or is it more direct the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners? There's a lot of debate over this, but what there's no debate over is that the father in this story is clearly intended to represent the heart of God. Clearly intended to represent the heart of God. This parable reveals the heart of God when people come to him. And there's an invitation for us also to be people of compassion. That is there in the text for sure, but I don't want us to miss the lavish compassion of the father over his son who has finally come home and only see the invitation for us. I don't want to see the invitation just as us having the opportunity to be people as compassionate. That is of course true. But first, like the appropriate place to start is like to understand the like deep love and compassion that the father has for a son who returns. And again, remember that these three parables are told together and the other two are directly describing the abundant joy in heaven that happens when one sinner repents. And this is a picture, a word picture describing it. The father looking for his son to return, then running to his son, and then the robes, and then the ring, and then the sandals, and then the fattened calf, and then the party. All of these props designed to show abundance from the father to the son. Do you see it? Like, do you get what God, what Jesus is after in sharing this story? This is God's love for his people. 
This is God's love for you and for me. This is the rejoicing in heaven on earth. This is the celebration of heaven, like currently happening when sinners come back to Jesus, when they come to the Father. It is now, there is party now, there's no spared expense, just exceedingly abundant joy and love. But the story, sadly, in my opinion, the story does not end here either. Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother is out faithfully doing his job and leadership on the estate. And when he comes home, he sees a party. He asks the servant what's going on, and the servant tells him about his brother. He's back. His brother's back, and not only in his back, but like the fattened calf. Dad has killed the fattened calf to celebrate him coming home. Your father said like something along the lines, like this is the greatest day of my life. My son who was dead has come home. He is alive again. And the older brother refuses to join the party. And notice, just for a second in the text, notice the father again. The father goes out to his oldest son. The father went out to meet his youngest son when he came back, and now his father goes out to meet his oldest son. His father leaves the party to go be with his oldest boy, and the father goes out to plead with him, but the oldest son isn't having any of the pleading. All these years I've never wronged you, but you never even gave me the youngest goat, let alone the fattened calf. But when this son of yours, notice the language, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours comes home who has squandered your property and our family name and the wealth with prostitutes, you have given him the fattened calf. And in verse 31, the father responds, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. My boy, everything I have is yours. You have always been with me, but your brother left and has now come back to me. Should we not celebrate? He was dead and now he is alive again. Is this not worthy of the fattened calf? And this is where the story ends. I know we wanted to end at the good part from earlier, but Jesus doesn't care about our preferences for his stories. My wife actually hates movies like this. She watches movies to be entertained, and when you get to the end and there's no conclusion, it drives her crazy. It doesn't have to even be a happy ending, as long as there's an ending. But Jesus doesn't tell us what happens next. We don't know if the older son ever goes into the party. And to be honest with you, that's not the point of the story. 
The point is not about reconciliation between brothers. The point is about reconciliation with the Father and the Father's pursuit of reconciliation with His sons. That's why I think the more appropriate title of this parable from Snodgrass, the scholar that writes on this, is The Compassionate Father and His Two Lost Sons. Both his sons are far from the heart of the father. Both of them, one in sin and rebellion and the other in rule-keeping and self-righteousness. Both of them miss the love of their father and the father still pursues after them, still welcomes them in, still longs for them to be like a full part of the family. Author and scholar Craig Bloomberg says, it'll be on the screen, God delights in the repentance of prodigals, but he would prefer that they not have to sink so low before coming to their senses. God cherishes the faithfulness of those who obey his will, but does not want them to despise the rebellious who have repented. And if you remember in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, all this begins with jeering from the religious about the tax collectors and the sinners following Jesus. And this parable teaches the hearers of Jesus' words that they ought to have the same attitude towards sinners as the Father does. I believe this parable is left open at the end as a way of invitation for the Pharisees and scribes asking these questions to Jesus. Like, Jesus leaves it open to them, like, do you want to go to the tax collectors and sinners' party? Do you want to celebrate the lost coming home? Do you want to share in their joy of a brother or a sister who has ruined everything but has finally come back to the family? And what's interesting is like the early church was not a fan of seeing the elder son as a Pharisee because Jesus actually speaks decently well of the Pharisee. Jesus speaks decently well. Like Jesus speaks... Um, Jesus speaks in Luke 15 about them like obeying all the commands. That's what the elder brother says to the father. Haven't I kept all of your commands? And I think that that's like that's an important and a big statement from Jesus. Quite often when we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, we see him like rattling their cage fairly often. I think sometimes we miss these little moments. But what Jesus seems to be doing is saying in this story that both the Pharisee and the tax collector have a home with God. That the righteous and the unrighteous have a home with God. Because the function of this parable is for both of the sons. And it ultimately boils down to the one question that each son has to come about in his own way through his own story, not too different than you and I. The question is not, will you do enough, or will you be enough, or will you stick around and do the noble thing enough to take care of your father? The question is, will you receive the abundant love of the father? Will you receive the abundant love of the father, not will you earn that is the problem with the eldest son. He thinks, he thinks that he has done everything right and therefore like he should be loved. He is worthy to be loved. But the invitation from this parable is not to earn God's love, but to receive the abundant love of God. What I love about what this reveals in the kingdom of God comes from Susan Eastman. She says, by both ancient 
and modern standards, the exemplary father in the parable of the prodigal son is a foolish parent. There's a quote from her book. I love the title, The Foolish Father and the Economics of Grace. The reality is that you do not have to choose which son you want to be like. You have to choose whether or not you will open up your life to the continual healing, cleansing, sufficient, adequate, and abundant love of God. Ultimately, this story is about God's love and patience for his ungrateful children, you and I. This story is about humanity as a whole and Israel's and Gentiles and all of us coming under the yoke of grace rather than the yoke of bondage. This is about the abundant love and grace of God for the righteous and for the sinner. This is a picture of what homecoming looks like and how the God of the heavens rejoices when you come to him. This is what the kingdom of God is like. For those that repent and are open to receiving, it is a kingdom full of grace. A kingdom full of grace. And if you're anything like me, even I was wrestling with this text this week because I do think we're invited to see like ourselves as the prodigal a bit. We're invited to see ourselves as the elderly brother a bit. And I think as I was even in my own heart wrestling with this text this week, I found myself just going like, yeah, God, I get it, but let me get my things right before I can come to you again. Let me clean the things up. Let me like do a bit more or, or not do this or whatever it is and just time and time and time again including this morning God's just like would you just receive my grace could it just be enough for you could you quit trying to make all the things right on your own accord and just become a person that depends on my grace could you not feel like you're the oldest brother having to get his things together and then I'll bless him? My, like I desire to bless you right where you are. I desire to be with you right where you are. Like everything I have is already yours. Would you just let me bless you and love you? And would you receive? And even in one of the, the parenting moments that I had this week, just like found myself longing to give love and grace and, and even like one of my kiddos just like having a hard time receiving that. This is a picture of my own heart. Just going like, I, I want it, God, but I don't deserve it. So I have to keep it at bay until I can feel like I deserve it. And that's just not the heart of God for you this morning. That's not the heart of God for his people. It's not the heart of a good father for their son or their daughter. So I think the invitation for us today is is to come to that question again. Would you receive the abundant love of the Father right where you are? Not somewhere else. Not where you think you should be. Not where you think you ought to be. Would you receive the love of the Father right where you are again today? Let us pray. Actually, would you stand with me while we pray? God, we come to you. 
we come to you with so many like mixed up and messed, <laughs> messed up stories or expectations in our own hearts or minds about how we think we're supposed to come to you. And I pray like by the power of the Spirit that you would break those walls down. That those like human expectations that we place on ourselves to come to you, that God, you would, you would break those down. And that you would allow us to come not in the power of like who we are or what we've done, but we could come in the power of your grace, that your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for each of us. Your grace is sufficient for this community of, of people. And it is by your grace that we come to you. And so God, as we come, um, even just to like respond in singing, to your scriptures, would you um, like pour your spirit out and bring healing to our hearts? Would you allow us to be overwhelmed by the love of the Father again? Would the normalcy of the story like be breathed to life again by the power of your spirit? That we could see the desire for the Father to to lavishly love his child is like you desiring to lavishly love us. You having great compassion for us. And not because we've deserved it, not because we showed up, not because of any of those things, but because this is the character of who you are. This is the character of who you are. So we come to you. We just come to you. Like wherever we are, we come to you. We desire to meet you again. We desire for you to pour out your love and grace and mercy on us again. In particular for like the heart that is trying to hide from God pray, Holy Spirit, that you would like expose that and you would pour out like lavish abundance on your children in this room. Holy Spirit, would you do things that only you could do? Would you continue to do the work of like drawing people to yourself and drawing us more and more and more to yourself? We thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you that you've saved us, God. Would you continue to heal us, God? We trust you. We trust you. Amen.